Good morning, Arbor Church. Good to see you today. I'm glad to be here. My name is Scott. I'm one of the regular speakers here at Arbor Church. If you're a first-time visitor, we're thrilled that you're here today. I hope that you can sit back, relax, just enjoy the ambience and the service of Arbor Church, and maybe come back again if you're passing through town. Thanks for choosing to spend some time with us. Um, I'm thrilled to be speaking today. We're continuing our series on Just Like Jesus. And so far, we've looked at what it means to investigate Christ in hopes to emulate Christ. We're investigating Christ in order for us to emulate Christ. And we have looked at how he walked, how he loved, how he served, and today we will focus on how he prayed. Um, And it's basically how to pray like Jesus. We're getting into that time of year. It's one of my favorite times of the year this year. Lights are going up, people are getting excited because it's the football playoffs. If that's not where you thought I was going, that's okay. We all have our priorities. No, we're getting to that time of the holidays where it seems like every child, every little one begins praying for something. Praying to be on the good list and not the naughty list or praying for this gift or that gift. And they pray in the sweet, naive way. When about, I don't know, several years ago, probably longer than that, I taught a Sunday school class for five-year-olds and six-year-olds. And if you ever want to have some joy and laughter in your life, go teach five- and six-year-olds. I I know in my job when I get discouraged, I just go into the kindergarten room for a while and you just leave happy. But in the Sunday school class, we'd gotten to the point where we're going to talk about prayer. And we thought it'd be great to teach our five- and six-year-olds the Lord's Prayer because that's a good Christian traditional thing to do. So we introduced the concept of prayer to the children. We taught them that even though you're a child, you can pray because your Father in Heaven wants to hear from you. You can pray about whatever you want. You can pray whenever you want. And when you're explaining this to five and six-year-olds, it delves into, I can pray in the bathtub. Yes, you can pray in the bathtub. Ooh, that's gross. Why would you do that? That's dumb. My dad, can he pray when he's driving a car? Yes, he can pray while he's driving the car. My mom prays while my dad's driving the car. Really, yes, my mom prayed that the Xbox would break so he wouldn't stay up so late at night wasting his time playing video games. My brother prays for this. Can I pray for this? Can I pray for that? And it delved quickly into this convoluted why, what, how, when of five and six-year-olds and their naivety and their beautiful operation of childlike prayer. And we taught them the Lord's Prayer and they got it really well and it came time to close. And I said, hey, since we're learning prayer, are any of you think you're brave enough to close us in prayer today. And this little girl raised her hand, and I'm like, oh, yes, look at this. I'm doing a great job. She's going to pray. And I don't remember names of all the children I work with. I'm going to call her Julie, and she raised her hand, and she says, I'll pray. So Julie came up front, and she started to pray. And she's praying for, you know, her mom and her dad, and she's praying for her dog, and she's praying for a friend that's sick, and she's praying for people that don't have food, and she's praying everything she's probably heard adults pray for. And then she takes a little pause, and she goes, and I pray that when we get home today, my dad would make us pancakes. And all of a sudden, out of the back of the room, this little boy's voice goes, and bacon, pray for bacon. And Julie just turned out, she goes, but I don't like bacon, but I do. And pray that Joey gets bacon when he gets home from his daddy, amen. That's the joy and sweetness, and it's like right there, the simplicity, the naivety, the the audacity to go to God and pray for pancakes and bacon. And what I hope today is that as we look at prayer, 
we get back to the fact that it's, it's a surreal, powerful tool that we have, but we've made it more complicated than the simplicity that it needs to be. I wrestled with doing the sermon because prayer is a spiritual, scriptural topic that could span weeks, months of teaching from the types of prayers to prayer purpose to why we should pray to how we should pray. Thousands of books have been written on prayer. There's hundreds of messages out there about prayer that might be better suited for you than this sermon that you're going to hear today. I wrestled with this sermon because it's something that I have struggled with personally in my own walk with God. At times, prayer for me has been, it's been, a, it's been a mystery to me. It's been a relief to me. It's been frustrating to me. It's been emptying to me at times where I left feeling nothing. It's been rewarding to me at times. Sometimes it's felt too ritual. Sometimes I felt fully engaged. Sometimes I felt completely engaged. And other times I felt completely enlightened. It's been an awkward, difficult journey at times. I wrestled with the sermon because I wanted to come at this topic of pray like Jesus from a creative, different perspective than the Lord's Prayer. I did not want to give you some formula, some acronym or another Christian checklist of what you should do when you should pray or how you should pray or what time of day is best. I grew up misunderstanding that prayer was about receiving from the moment of your first prayer, receiving Christ into your life to then possibly receiving this and receiving that. Can I receive this healing? Can I receive this help? Can I receive this blessing? Can I receive this? And I soon began to feel there was an emptiness to my prayers because it was all about receiving. And so as I thought about prayer and I kept thinking about it more in my lifetime, I've always circled back to the Lord's Prayer because, well, it's the only time in Scripture where the disciples asked him, teach us to pray. And he said, let me show you how. So why not go back to the Lord's Prayer and look at it through a lens of what's the intent behind the words. My hope today is that we would reveal more of the heart of what the Lord's Prayer was to Jesus. Rather than looking at the Lord's Prayer as a formula or a checklist, I want to share the heart of what Jesus was teaching his disciples. That prayer is about the Father and his glory. His will, his provision, his forgiveness, his deliverance, his joy in hearing our prayers and his absolute revelry and having relationship and conversation with us because he is our father. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin to look at the Lord's prayer and this concept of prayer, I pray that you would literally, I mean this Lord, just move me out of the way that my words may be spoken, but your message may go forth. I pray that for each one of us in this room that you would give us ears that want to hear, hearts that want to listen, and feet that want to put into action what we learn today, Lord, and change the world for your glory. Thank you for your time. Amen. This passage we're going to look at comes in the midst of what is called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had withdrawn to a mountainside. His disciples went with him, some followers went along with him, and Jesus sat and began what is the longest recorded teaching session in the New Testament, called the Sermon on the Mount. 
The Beatitudes are in there. Fasting is in there. Giving is in there. Worry is in there. It's a list, a laundry list of Christianity and lifestyle. And towards the middle end of that, the disciples asked him at a break in the Sermon on the Mount, saying, Lord, can you teach us to pray? And that's where we pick up this passage in the midst of this lot of teaching about prayer. I want to start with verses 5 through 8, a little bit of a prologue to set the stage before we dive into the Lord's Prayer. In verses 5 through 8 of Matthew 6, And when you pray, speaking to his disciples, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues, or temples, and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. My first point is this. Prayer is personal. I almost thought of making it prayer is private, but that's confusing because there is a time for public prayer. There is a time for group prayer. There is a time to pray where we're at. So I went with prayer is personal. And this is going to weave, this theme, that prayer is personal, is going to weave into the very first thing about the Lord's Prayer. But what I want you to know is that prayer is intended to be a private, personal endeavor with our Father God. It does not mean you shouldn't pray in public or with others in groups. Again, you need to look at the heart and the spirit of what Jesus is teaching. In fact, he begins this whole session back up in verse 1 of Matthew 6 by saying this. Be careful not to practice your righteousness. All these things that I'm teaching you today in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't really call it that. He just said, all these things I'm trying to teach you today, do not practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Not that we shouldn't show our righteousness and demonstrate our righteousness, but if the intent and the heart of you being righteous in public and praying in public is to make you look good, it's folly. It's emptiness. It's not meeting the point of what God's trying to say. And he says here, if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. It's not a materialistic reward. It's the relational connection reward that we get for having a father, a creator of the universe that wants to talk with us. The takeaway is simply this. Prayer is not a performance to showcase your spirituality, your beliefs, your theology, your faith, or your power in Christ. It is intended to be a personal and private time with your father. I like how John Piper says, prayer is intentionally conveying a message to God. It is more than just talking to God. It's a conveyance of our heart, our needs, and our hopes to the Father. Not much different than when my kids want to talk with me. It's a personal endeavor. So let's get to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. Keeping that point in the back of our mind, like I said, prayer is personal. He reiterates it right away at the beginning of the prayer. Let's read the Lord's Prayer now out of Matthew 6, 9 through 13. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. 
and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Some later manuscripts tack on a phrase that maybe you have in your scriptures that for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The Lord's Prayer. Something that's known by most people in any religious circle around the world. Some have said it's the most uttered prayer in all of humanity. But I want to look more closely at it. And if you look right at verse 9 when he starts, we go right back to what we had just said. He says, you pray like this, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Because prayer is personal. This is about you and your heavenly Father. We are adopted children, heirs to a kingdom. We are filled by his Holy Spirit, united to him for eternity. Prayer is personal because we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, his son, who died for us to pave the way for that relationship. And relationships are built on time together. Time together builds trust. Trust and time create relationships. Relationships create vulnerability. Jesus says in Galatians 4, 4 through 6, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer slaves, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Perhaps the concept of a father is marred or problematic for you today. Perhaps it doesn't render up a very warm or trusting relationship. But I would bet that most of us in this room could create a picture or an idea of what a caring, loving father would be like. And I'll tell you that our father in heaven is all of that and more beyond your wildest dreams. While he has expectations of us, he doesn't demand perfection from us. See, he's perfect, and yet he's personal. We can't be perfect. We try to be personal, but we're imperfect in our personal walk with people. He is perfect in his personal walk with us. And when we meet with him, it's a personal endeavor. Much like one of my favorite times with my kids growing up was bedtime. We'd all pile into one of the kids' beds. They'd all crawl up around me. We'd tell stories. Esther and Cody were some of their favorite stories about two horses. And we'd laugh and we'd talk. And sometimes we'd talk about random things. And then everybody would get in their beds and I'd tuck them in. I'd walk out of the door and I'd shut and I'd be like, yeah, that's the good stuff. And if you're a parent, you get those moments. And what I'm trying to relay to you in these first three words, our Father in heaven our Father, he wants to sit with you. He says, come up here and sit down. Let's talk. Let me hear from you. What's going on? He knows, but he wants to hear because that's the good stuff. He then goes right from our Father to the second part of verse nine, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name, and this is prayer is honoring God. Prayer is, is honoring God. This is the heart and purpose of prayer. It's to glorify God. 
Hallowed means to be made holy, consecrated, greatly revered above others. We find the first thing that we are to pray is our Father, may your name be glorified in everything I do, everything I say. May you be glorified in my life, in my family, in my friendships, in my relationships, in my work, in my pursuits, in my job. May you be glorified. May you be hallowed above all else. Because if I live my life in a manner that at the end of my life, all the praise is heaped on me, it's emptiness and folly. If my life, the only legacy I leave, leads my family and people to the foot of the cross to encounter Jesus as their savior, that's the point. The point of our life in Christ is to bring glory to him in our time on this earth. And it sounds like a selfish endeavor that this God up there needs us to bring him glory. He is glorious. It's not an easy thing. In fact, it's so difficult it split heaven in thirds because Satan, Lucifer, the highest angel, split off thinking, I'm done bringing you glory. I'm going to get my own glory. And we saw how that worked out for him. Hallowed be your name. Not my name. Don't stand on street corners like the hypocrites. Don't stand in the churches putting on some big show because it's not about you. Prayer, while it is for you, and while prayer is about personal relationship with Christ, the point of prayer is to put us in a position to bring glory to him. And I think we forget that. Does that mean he doesn't want to hear your requests, your petitions, your hurt, your pain, your anger? No, he wants to hear all of that but he's gonna take all that and shape it for his glory through us as broken vessels. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is surrender. Prayer is surrender. We not only get this point, but later, In Jesus' ministry, he exemplified this point. In fact, if we were to fast forward probably two years from this point, the Sermon on the Mount, we would find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying his last prayers hours before he got crucified and hours before he would pass away. And in fact, we find him in John 17 saying in verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Before he was crucified, he's saying, it's not me. I came here, I've done your glory, I've done your work. We find in Matthew 26, 39, in the same Garden of Gethsemane at the same time, he went a little further, he fell on his face to the ground, and Jesus prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I love that verse because in that moment, the humanity of Jesus, the man-child of God, comes to full revelation for us. He is hurting. He's in anguish. He does not want to do this. The human side of Jesus says, stop. Is there no other way? Do I really have to be beat? Do I really have to be rejected, falsely accused, crucified, painfully executed? Do I really have to do that, Jesus? And many of us have found ourselves in the same spot. Why do we have to do this? Why is this happening? Why can, is there any other way? Can you fix this if you would just do this? If I could just have a little bit more of that, if you could just. And Jesus throws all that out there at his father. And then he says, 
but not my will be done, but yours. There's something in the human spirit since the Garden of Eden where we don't like to surrender. We don't like to submit. We think that we've got it figured out because we bought the great lie that Satan told us that, oh, you will not die. You will just become like God. Your eyes will be open. And so we wrestle with this idea of surrender. How do we live in his will rather than our own will? After all, we came into this world wanting our own way from day one. And if you've had kids, you understand that. Go back to the beginning of the prayer. Hallowed be your name. I know that when I struggle with surrendering my will, it's usually because I'm not making God's honor the priority or I'm operating out of fear. Fear of what that would lead to. The fear makes me think that he's going to make me do something I don't want to do, that I'm not good at, that I'm not interested. He's going to make me move to some remote corner of the world, live in a mud hut with no running water, and serve him for eternity penniless and broke. That's what I thought for a long time. But the idea of surrender is not that. It's for him to be glorified in your life. We do this by loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind, by loving others as he taught us to and serving the world. Here's the thing. It reminds me of the story of a little boy who had an ice cream truck drive through his neighborhood once a week. And you could hear the ice cream truck coming down the road and the music playing, and I just realized I might be dating myself here. Does anybody know what I mean by an ice cream truck? Not the big Swanson's one. That was the best ice cream truck. Now I'm really dating myself. But you know the little tiny one that like, how many I'm talking about? We don't really have ice cream trucks anymore. In fact, in Duval where I live, there was a minivan disguised in an ice cream truck driving around. That was a little bit creepy. Like, why, dude, are you driving around in a minivan handing out ice cream? But anyway, in the day, there was ice cream trucks. They'd drive around, and they would sell their ice creams to kids, and they would come out and flock around it, and they'd give them a dollar. You'd get your ice cream treat, and you'd walk off all happy. And the boy heard the ice cream treat coming down the street. He's like, yes, ice cream man, ice cream man. Ice cream, you scream. We all scream for ice cream. And he ran inside and said, Dad, 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 I need a dollar. Dad's like, oh, okay, why? The ice cream truck is coming. Can't you hear the music? Um, okay, so dad's looking around because he likes to please his son and give him a dollar for ice cream. I, I don't have a dollar. All I've got is this $10 bill. No, I need a dollar. But son, I, let me, I got a 10, I don't, I need just a dollar. Ice cream is a dollar. It's not a one zero, it's a one. No, you don't understand. I want to give you this $10 bill because a 10 I need a dollar for ice cream. And he goes into this raving little fit. And the ice cream truck drives by and he gets more pitched and the dad gets more frustrated. What is going on? And the ice cream truck drives away. And the boy doesn't get his ice cream. And he missed out on the fact of all the father was trying to tell him was, son, I can't give you a dollar, but I got something far better than what you think you need is just a dollar. I got $10. That's 10 ice creams. You can buy ice creams for all your friends. You can buy enough ice cream to eat it every night for the next week but you're so focused on your own desire of a $1 bill, you're missing out on the $10 bill I want to get you. And you look at me, you're like, that's silly, but it's not, is it? Because it's us. And if you have kids, they've done something similar. And it frustrates you because they just don't understand. Fortunately, we serve a God that doesn't get frustrated with us like that, but he does go, oh my goodness. Because we go to him with our will our wants, our desires, which is not bad. 
We need to express those to him, share those with him. But in the end, not my will, but your will, God, because maybe I'm missing out on a $10 bill. Maybe you have something far greater and better than I can even think about right now. The idea of a $10 bill to a five-year-old, it's like a whole different paradigm shift. And once kids find out about money, life's over as we know it. Used to fool my kids, you know, I could give them three $1 bills and they thought they were rich because it's three, right? But then I tried to give them a $5 once and that's not fair, I want three, you only gave me one. They figure it out quickly. The idea is this, prayer is surrender. It's not a mine, 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 mine prayer that I found myself falling into for years of my life. Good intentions, said the right things, tried to have the right attitude, but I realize that prayer is surrendering your will to God's will. Verse 11, give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. Prayer is daily dependence. Prayer is daily dependence. See, if we go through the Lord's Prayer and we just say all these words, you don't really understand the context or history of this. When Jesus said here, give us Um, give us our daily bread, it was connected very deeply to the Israelites and the Jews to whom he was talking. See, it it, it goes back to when the Jews were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. We don't have time for that history lesson. God said yes, they said no, they wandered for 40 years. And in the wandering of the wilderness for 40 years, food was scarce and eating became an issue. And they went to Moses and said, Moses, we need food. And Moses petitioned God and God said, I'll provide for them. I'll have bread fall from heaven. It wasn't actual loaves of bread that I thought when I was a kid, like big loaves of bread falling out of the sky. I thought that was weird. There was this little tiny element called manna that they would scoop up, they would pound up and grind up and make into cakes and bake. And it had a sweet taste to it. And the cool thing about the manna is God said, here's the deal, I'll provide that every day for you, but you can only collect enough for you and your family for one day. Because after one day, it's gonna spoil, it's gonna get worms, it's gonna go bad. I guarantee you there was somebody out there that tested that and got up the next morning to eat the manna bread and bit into a big worm. Yeah, that's right, don't take it more than one day. But the idea was this, God said, I'll provide for you daily. I don't want you collecting and hoarding for a week because then that dependency goes away. So I will give you daily what you need. Not that he can't provide for long term, but there's a daily dependency in prayer that he wants us to understand. And I think the reason we don't do that is we want our nourishment now. Feed me now. Feed me enough so I don't ever get hungry again. And I think a lot of it is tied into worry. We worry that if we don't have enough for days to come, what's gonna happen? Or we've had past experiences that things didn't go well, so we project that forward and we worry about that. Or we've seen what happened to other people and I'm gonna worry that's gonna happen to me. And we worry that I might have enough for today, but what about tomorrow, what about beyond that? Or I can't pay this, and we worry. And it's very ironic that right after the Lord's Prayer, guess what God talks about next? Worry. He says in Matthew 6, 25, do not worry. He says this, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? 
not that those things are not important, people. That's not the point. They're significant. They're not insignificant. He's saying, for the pagans or non-believers run around after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom, his glory, and his righteousness, his glory, and these things will be given to you as well. He says in other parts of the scripture, he says, it's like if a child, my son came to me and asked me for bread, would I give him a snake? No. The point is this. God knows our needs. He will provide daily for your needs. I don't know how. I've seen miraculous things happen, folks. I've seen crazy things happen. I've been down and broke and so on the ends of my last rope trying to decide, do I pay the electric bill? Do I pay groceries? Do I pay the mortgage? And I didn't have the money and I walked out and there's an envelope on the windshield of my car for the exact amount to pay all three. I don't know how that happens or why that happens. Does that happen all the time? No, but the idea is this. God will provide your needs daily because he wants you to be nourished in him daily. The same reason you have children and you feed them daily for that daily nourishment. We need to be renewed and revived each day, praying without ceasing in your thoughts, in your, in your time, wherever that is. When we engage in daily prayer and petitions with God, our worries can be alleviated by the reminder that our Father cares and will provide. It's not that all things are made better, but rather the promise that our Father will provide a way for our daily needs. The perspective of what we need and what we want will be reshifted in our conversations with him. Prayer is daily dependence, daily nourishment, going to our Father and saying, hey, here's what I need. I don't know how it's gonna happen, but I'm just letting you know. He goes, okay. Verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Prayer is grace. Prayer is grace. Grace gotten, grace given. We got grace, we need to go give grace. Jesus expands on this teaching just after the Lord's Prayer. It's as if he's doubling down on this point. And so I want to read it to you from a passage in a book called The Message, which is another translation of the scripture, but it's trying to translate it in like street language, the street cred of the day, the language of the day of the common people, not in what people would call the educated language, maybe more the language that Jesus used when talking to people. And we read this in the message of Matthew 6, 14 to 15. In prayer, there is a connection between what God does and what you do. You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving others. If you refuse to do your part, you cut yourself off from God's part. He doesn't cut you off, you remove yourself. The point here is that if we're going to, if we're going to our Father God and asking him for forgiveness, blessings, or help, then we should be willing to do the same for others in our life in a community. Otherwise, we're just acting like the Pharisees that are a bunch of hypocrites and they act a certain way but do nothing for others. 
It's the idea that when you pray for patience, it's because you need to show patience to somebody that drives you crazy. When you ask for forgiveness, it's because you realize you need to go show forgiveness to somebody else. The idea is that, is that if you're seeking something from God, he will give that to you so you are empowered to go do that elsewhere. That's why we pray for patience, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, compassion, compassion, all these things. Not that we are filled with it, but that we're filled with it so that we can glorify God by showing it to others. And that is not an easy endeavor to do because sometimes we just don't like people. And sometimes there are people in your own family. Come on, let's not lie. Sometimes you don't like your kids. I'm a principal. I got lots of kids I work with. Now, while I love all my kids, there's some kids I just don't like. And they never miss school. They have perfect attendance every single day. All the time. For six years from kindergarten to fifth grade. And while I may not like their attitude or their behaviors or the way they act at times, I love them. Children are the easy part. Let's talk about adults. Adults are even harder to get along with sometimes. I guarantee you there's people in here, you've got adults in your life that just push my button. But if we're going to stand here and say, I'm going to live in grace with Christ, I'm going to accept God's mercy, I'm going to accept God's patience and understanding with me, then we also need to give that to others. That is not an easy thing to do. And it's not an easy thing to try to do in your own life, but that's why we pray, forgive us as we have forgiven others. As God said, I've forgiven you, now you go forgive others. The idea is this, whatever I do for you, you pray up the power up to go do to others because left to your own devices, I'm not gonna do that to others. I'm gonna do what kids do. They hit, they kick, they bite, they shove, they call names, they write mean notes, they yell, they scream. And while we modify and dress up those things as adult, they're really the same childish behaviors. Do we really want to forgive as Christ forgave us? Do we really want to love as Christ loves us? Do we really want to show patience as Christ shows us patience? Prayer, right? Prayer. Verse 12, sorry, we just did verse 12. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Prayer is freedom. Prayer is freedom. If you know anything about scripture, you know that there's a, running, there's a running commentary through scripture that outside of Christ, you're slaves to yourself and your sin, but in Christ, you are free, a new creature, all right, a new creation, newly clothed. See, most of us resist Christ and his will and things because they think, we think that it's gonna confine us and restrict us, when in actuality, when you surrender fully to God and live fully in Christ, you find that you have abundant freedom and fullness. It's an oxymoron that doesn't make sense until you lean into that with Christ. Temptation is a sneaky little trait, though. I'm faced daily with situations of being who I ought to be in Christ, yet I seem to always do the opposite at times. Paul said this in Romans, one of the greatest missionaries. Why do I do the things I shouldn't do? And the things I know I should do, I don't do them consistently either. That's the great battle we all have. I know this after my years of trying to be the best person I could be, and I found out that resistance is futile. A little Star Trek reference there for you. 
On my own, under my own power, I will ultimately not be my best self. Understand that I'm not saying we can't be good on our own, but we're not called to be good. We're called to be great. We're called to be holy. We are called to be children of God, heirs of his kingdom. And we have a privileged opportunity to engage in greatness and we settle for goodness. And believe me, a lot gets done in goodness. You know what doesn't get happen in goodness? Salvation, redemption, renewal, relationship with a father. Freedom is the ability to be who you are in the direction God wants to use you. Freedom is the ability to be who you are in the direction God wants to use you. He was not asking you to not be authentically you. He may ask you to change some of your behaviors and the way you're acting because they're not positive, but he will guide you to be who you are so that he can be glorified through you. See, the enemy Satan walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom, whom, he, seeking whom he may devour. Now that's a funny concept to teach to five and six-year-olds. That the enemy Satan is like a lion walking around looking for someone to devour. That was an interesting lesson because I had kids crying at the end of it when they got picked up by their parents saying, we have to go home and pray so I don't get eaten by a lion. Like, no, you're not really gonna get eaten by a lion, but you said the Bible said I'm gonna get eaten like a lion. The power of analogy is this. The lion devours the weak. They don't chase down the most healthy gazelle. They chase down the weakest. And outside of prayer and giving into temptation, we set ourselves up to be weak. And there is nothing weak about our father. And yet we live in weakness rather than his strength. It's interesting that just after Jesus got baptized by John the Baptist, he was led into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by Satan. Because what good is a God that says he lived life on earth but was never tempted to sin? And he was tempted in three critical areas that may not seem big to you and me, but for who he was, the son of God, all-knowing, all-powerful, separated from that to walk on this mud ball that his father created, those temptations were real. But there's a unique thing that Jesus did during those temptations. Not only did he pray, he used scripture. So here's a little freebie on the side. If you're gonna build your prayer life, you need to build it alongside scripture. Scripture is the water that you mix with the powder of prayer to get a firm foundation. If all you're trying to do is mix up the powder of prayer every day without the water of the scripture, it's not gonna become a solid foundation in your life. We need to have scripture infused in our lives. Sometimes I pray, I'm just reading the scripture and then I get quiet and I shut up for a while and just try to listen. I don't hear things sometimes. Sometimes I write things down, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I just pray for a little while. This is not about how you should pray, how long you should pray, what you should say in your prayers, when you should pray, when you shouldn't pray. Some people pray at night, some people pray in the morning, some people pray driving to work. That's not what this is about. What this is about is this. Prayer is power. Prayer is power to not live in weakness under temptation, but to live in the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit from God our Father. It's all centered around honoring the Father. Jesus, the very Son of God, understood that even he needed to find time to connect and pray to his Father in heaven. How much more so do we as broken, sinful people need to ensure that we are seeking time with our Father? 
Think about that concept. The Son of God, come to earth as a man, would retreat to quiet places at times to pray. He prayed for his disciples, with his disciples. He prayed over people. He healed people. Prayer was the essence of his life. My hope is that may we pray like Jesus. I want to read you the Lord's Prayer one more time, but I want to read it to you from the message because I like the way it says some things in here. And when you come before God, don't turn into a theatrical production either. These people make, a pr- make prayer a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for stardom. You think God sits on a box seat? Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage your true self. The focus will shift from you to God and you'll begin to sense his grace. The world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. They are full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father you are dealing with, and he knows better than you what you need. With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply like this. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do what's best as above and so here below. Keep us alive with three square meals. Keep us forgiven with you so we can forgive others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. You are in charge. You can do anything you want. You are ablaze in beauty. Jesus' prayers were fully centered on the Father and what he provided and desired. If you look closely at the Lord's Prayer, it says, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Your provision of our needs. Your forgiveness of our sins. Your deliverance from our sins and fears and worries. All Christ-centered and honoring the Father. To pray like Jesus, we must imitate the spirit with what Jesus walked on this earth and gave his life. Not my will be done, but your will be done. Do I really believe that the Father's will is best for me? When I finally can accept this, then I will truly be able to pray like Jesus. And those prayers will find joy and revelry with our Father. So even when we do sit, prayeth our Father, whether we pray for pancakes and bacon, he will be pleased because he knows he want, we want him to glorify others through others to bring attention back to our Father. Our Father. Let's pray.